wanted to do a podcast looking specifically at pension engagement for a while. It's it's a critical issue and an area of pensions where we've all got to kind of raise our game a bit more. And we've got the DWP industry collaboration on the pension engagement season now starting to take shape. So I'm delighted to bring you this conversation with Robert Cochran of Scottish Widows. He's got some great experience and insights. I hope you enjoy it. engagement stuff and you've been working on it for a while and you've done quite a bit of stuff around it so just kind of to get the ball rolling what led you into pension engagement in the first place what was it that got you interested in in how we how the pensions industry connects with its customers yeah great great question so for me it really began at pension freedom so prior to that i spent a lot of time working with advisors and dealing with advisors as a broker consultant and then when pension freedoms came in it kind of reset everything it was like how do you go and talk to your customers directly about what all these new pension freedoms are so i'm um, to interrupt you so early in the so sorry yeah. i'm just getting started right. you were you're still at you're at scottish widows now you were at scottish widows then as well correct uh, exactly I, yeah. I was at scottish widows and i was given the task of trying to create a website where people could come and find out about their new retirement freedoms because we had all these hundreds of thousands of people retiring every year, and suddenly their options were going to be opened up quite significantly. And then I was given the challenge of making sure that we had that website up and running six months before Pension Freedoms came in, because that's when people got the retirement packs. And of course, all the rules weren't actually clear at that time. Well, and we were only given 13 months notice anyway, right? <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. And it, it, it made things tricky, but we just went back to basics. So. Every single week, I would go down and as we were trying to develop the language, trying to develop the website and trying to develop the support, I'd go down to various different research places in and around London and sometimes in Edinburgh and just sit down and watch people trying to navigate this. So what language did they use? What language did they understand? What did they actually want to achieve with their pension funds? And it, it was amazing. It was it was kind of mind-blowing, just the lack of understanding that people had. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you again. I'm sorry. I'll try not to make a habit of doing this, but I'm just really intrigued because you you said you were a broker consultant at the time. But, but yep. clearly, I mean, and there's a big part, communication's a big part of that job. So I get that. Yep. I've, I've done it myself in the previous life. So I get that. Did you have experience of website design? Did you have experience of consumer testing? I mean, I, I love love your methodology here, but did you have experience of doing that kind of stuff? Was it or was it just a bit random here, Robert? You, you sort this out. What's the story uh, there? Well, I, I mean, I wasn't exactly a broker consultant. I was a pension specialist within Scottish Widows, but I'd come from that background. So no, I'd, I'd never designed a website. But I did know quite a lot about how that stuff worked. And what they needed was somebody to drive this forward who would have an absolute customer focus. In big organizations like Scotch Widows or, or other big organizations, sometimes difficult to get stuff done unless you've got somebody who's going to drive that forward. And I was actually just about, just before Pension Freedoms, I was just about to join an annuities team so i'd kind of <laughs> I was just about to do that i mean there. Uh, well literally was about to to do that and my boss was going to be head of uh, head of annuities and retirement so we suddenly got this 
Pandora's box chucked at us and go like, right, this this is all changing. Yeah. So I was already aligned to do that. It was like quick switch across. I was joined by another industry guy, Dave McGovern, and the two of us, he was building the processes of how we deal with it, and I was dealing with how, how we'd engage with customers. And as I say, it was, it was completely eye-opening. I mean, I, I totally loved it. Uh, it, was, it was an exciting time to be involved in pensions. What I saw quite quickly was just how little people actually understood I remember one of the first ones I went to when we were trying, we've been trying to build stuff about how do you build your state pension into this? How do you get people to value that? And I watched one guy sitting in with his wife going, we don't need to worry about state pension. I've got £50,000 in a pension pot. Why should I care about state pension? And I was just immediately struck by how people couldn't really understand the numbers and what it all meant. But yeah, on top of that, what else did they feel? They were really riled up by what they called city boy language, you know, the, the way that we spoke about pensions. So they, they, they just didn't get annuities, they didn't get uh, much of the terminology that we used. And uh, it, was, it was like an, an eye-opener that we really need to simplify everything that we do. But um, without being patronising, right? So it's quite a delicate trick to pull off to make it accessible and I, I regularly reference this i think the way the government has gone about the redesign of its websites making everything really clean and simple i think is, is you know a really good model for how i mean it's different because people kind of have to go through that whereas they think they think they have an option to just not engage with pensions so building that bridge across to them is, is it's about it's about making things simple and engaging, isn't it? Without making them feel like you're talking down to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I also agree with the government websites, and it's a kind of model that we've taken into app design. You know, just like one question on each page, you just choose your your outcome, and and it makes it easy for you to navigate and follow the journey all the way through. But at, th at that point in time, it was just a whole of new concepts. Even the names of things, you know, like PCLS and UFPLS and all of that stuff. You know, I, I, I was going out to the industry saying, "What should we call this stuff?" You know, partial drawdown. What, what should we call that? Like, let's call it flexi axis drawdown. That's a uh, nice catchy name. Yeah. Well. <laughs> tried lots of different things and you know we built like case studies that you could put your own numbers in so it was like you read about different people who might be in a similar situation to you somebody wanted to pay for their daughter to go to university somebody wanted to help their kids out with property some other people wanted to do you know various different things and how you could follow that through put your own numbers in and yeah it, the, the stuff worked pretty well and then obviously we got to the point of, of it going live and you know, I don't think pensions have ever been sexier than they were then. Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, I really found, because I was going through a kind of similar experience at Hardrings at the time and it was, and we did customer focus groups and we were trying to work out what our proposition should be and it was just striking how all of a sudden, this I, I think George Osborne was very clever about, is it really did kind of get people interested in their pensions and for all that, I think there was unfortunate mischaracterization of annuities. I still like annuities. I think they definitely have a place in people's retirement income arrangements. But you could just see people going, ah, so, so I get control of my money now. And that really resonated with people. And when we did the client focus group stuff, that sense of, oh, I'm in control now. They've given my money back to me. I can choose how I use it. That was really powerful, even if they didn't actually know how to, to exercise that responsibility efficiently, because as we know, managing the decumulation process is no, no simple trick. Uh, yeah, and I think it's one of the challenges that as you try to develop new products that maybe move people into guaranteed income, 
automatically or, or you know so, some of the stuff that was all coming out at the time guided outcomes and all that they all struggled from the fact that people actually quite like to be able to get access of their own cash the day that pension freedoms came in we had 180 people waiting in the calls half an hour before our phone lines opened so so people did want access to their money and to do new things with it yeah yeah and you you started doing some media work around then as well yeah, it was about um, trying to take the data that we had and the insight that we had. So all the stories that you build up from watching all of these people navigate their way through through the pension freedom maze. And then as soon as you go live with it, you're then tracking what people are actually doing and how they're spending their money. You know, So we saw the surge in camper vans getting bought. I would listen into phone calls just to listen into what people were actually planning to do with their money. And I mean, it, it got so exciting that the BBC One show actually came up to Edinburgh and interviewed us in, in our offices here. I took them for a walk through pretending that this big office was mine. Of course, it wasn't. <laughs> Walking through the floor and then talking to some of our colleagues about the kind of calls that they'd had, you know, interesting stories about. You know, like I remember one one old lady who decided that she was just going to spend the rest of her life on cruises mm. because she had enough money and it was better for her than going into like an old folks home. She wanted to just cruise all over the place. And so, it was, <laughs> so yeah, it was about bringing those stories to life. Didn't didn't come across many Lamborghinis, but you know, lots of other good examples of how people were using their money differently. And isn't it funny? I mean, that throwaway remark from Steve, which I, which I don't think was pre-planned. How that stuck the whole Lamborghini thing, but it was slightly it was totemic of you know fine if you want to buy a Lamborghini go for it and and I think it's interesting how that sort of resonated a bit and people did think oh okay I can really do what I want with my money now with it you know spending the rest of my life on a cruise ship or, or whatever yeah yeah so all, all of that work to create that and then looking at the, the the material that came out of it and then sharing that with I think we were probably one of the first companies to share out what we were seeing happening and put the stories around how people were using their money. So all of that stuff really got me quite into the whole pension engagement space. Okay. Okay. And then from that came, did you launch the Pensions Awareness Day? Was that your baby? No, the Pension Geeks came up with the idea. So basically on Twitter, there was a, a little company just appeared called Pension Geeks. And they kind of had a, you know, a fresh way to do talk about pensions. Didn't have a background in it, but they were just trying to do it in a different way, taking away jargon. So exactly the kind of thing that I could see that people wanted and to try and inject a bit of fun into it as well. So Jonathan and, and Rachel at Pension Geeks started to create that, but they didn't really know what it was that they were creating. And they came up with the idea of having a bus that would tour around the country and that would become a pension bus. And I, I asked them to come and see me in, in Edinburgh and managed to get Scottish Widows to back it and uh, sponsor the bus. And if we didn't really know what was going to happen, and they didn't know what was going to be on the bus. <laughs> so it was like starting from complete scratch. And if, if I think back to the very first time that the bus was, was anywhere, it was in Edinburgh, uh, that very first day, I didn't really know what was going to happen. It was pouring with rain, sitting underneath the castle. I'd actually contacted your now colleagues, Mark Polson and Mark Locke, and asked them if they would come on the bus as well just to boost it a little bit. Well, you think that would have helped? <laughs> well, I weren't really sure what was going to happen. I asked them if they'd maybe do a presentation, but I didn't know who was going to turn up or anything like that. And on that very first day, I and mean, I've still got kind of a photo of the guy here, a, a guy came on who was an older guy in his 60s who had an, he was working for an employer that had a legal and general auto-enrollment pension scheme and he'd opted out of it. And he came to see me at lunch and said, look, I've opted out of the scheme. I'm, I'm not the smartest tool in the box, was his words. But I'm not really sure what I should be doing. So I didn't 
I opted out of it because I was, wasn't feeling that fit and I didn't think I'd continue working, but I'm now feeling much fitter now and I think, I think I'll work for a few more years. Can you tell me, what, what do you think I should do? And you know, I said to him, well, it makes sense for you to go back and, and opt back into your scheme. He said, okay, I feel much, much better about that. And he went away and then came back on his way home from work later on to tell me he'd done it. And I was like, wow, this is pension engagement actually happening. It's working. Yeah. And from then on, I was, you know, I was pretty, pretty hooked for the whole power of what we could achieve. And again, if I think about two days later, Tom, uh, I, I had a guy coming on the bus. I was actually sitting down with a couple, helping them, you know, work out what it was that they had in their pensions. And um, I could hear a commotion at the back of the bus. And a guy shouting, I effing hate Scottish widows. I effing hate them. They've stolen all my money. And like, God, okay. right. <laughs> Sit there and um, managed to usher out the couple we've been dealing with. And, and this couple came and this couple came and sat down. And, it, you know, it turns out that the guy had moved house twice. He was there with his fiance because she wanted him to get it sorted out. There with his fiance, sat down. Turned out he'd moved to house twice. And his surname was Whitaker. And his surname was Whitaker with one T. And we had him set up as Whitaker with two T's on our system. So he'd moved house twice. So he was giving us the wrong postcode from what we had on record and his name was spelled slightly differently. So he couldn't get access to his details. And, and this is a really common problem. Right? There's a lesson there for the pension dashboard, right? It's about uh, uh, data quality. A hundred percent. And that, you know, that's why I'm telling it. You know, it's just, and people, people locked in a cycle of unable to get access to it, feeling that they've, they've had their money stolen. If you look on review sites just now for pensions companies, you're going to find that there's Lots of people that feel that way as well, you know, partly because of the investment performance and partly because of just the inability to get hold of their own information. Right. So, so, so I mean, yeah, and I agree we've got a huge task ahead of us in terms of kind of rehabilitating the pensions brand, which we'll never entirely do, but, but in, at least in getting people to see pensions positively and to want to engage with them. But the problem is Robert Cochran is not scalable. Not even with a bus. We could write some really fine messages on the side of the bus, but that's still not going to work. And I guess the focus over the more recent years, I mean, sort of stepping back from the pension freedom stuff, has been to deliver a lot of this kind of information and engagement to the workplace, right? Yeah. And, and that that was absolutely the kind of master trope because that first year we just went to different city centres. You couldn't control who was coming on, you couldn't control the foot flow, you couldn't. It was difficult to get people in large numbers to come on because you you just didn't know when you turned up in any city you were you were looking at a lot of footfall rather than people coming. So I thought, why don't why don't we try taking this bus to employers? Uh, we've got plenty of employer schemes, so managed to get a couple to agree to it actually took the widow out to one of the first ones so you had just to create a bit of buzz and excitement which, which, which widow was that uh, the current one amber martinez <laughs> took her out there and uh, you know we created a bit of a buzz around it all and, and it was amazing so we ran presentations on the top floor people were really excited about it and it, it started we started to learn quite quickly that people would engage with their pensions they needed they needed easy ways to do it and over a couple of years of doing that, you know, we went from one week going to employers to three weeks going to employers. So it went from a one week thing to a th to a one month thing very quickly, going around to employers, running presentations on the top of the bus. So people would get a bus ticket for their presentation. We get all that stuff done in advance and we'd run presentations about what about your pension scheme. How does it work? And it, and it was fantastic. You know, people wouldn't have their phones out. They would just be sitting there finding out all about it and, and the key to making this stuff work was working out how do you get people to engage in it and it came down to questions and our three questions what have i got 
So how much is in my pension? Because once people find out they've got something that's of value, they're then a bit more interested in it. And then question two, is it enough? So how do you get tools to help people work out what it is that they're going to get? And then three, move them to action. What can I do next? Those, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, the work that's gone on the dashboard and the online pension calculators, sort of like some maps and others, those, certainly the first two are reasonably easy to answer if you can get people in the right place where they're at least thinking about those questions. We can help you with those. I guess yeah. the third bit of, okay, what do I do next? Whether the money's going to come from you or your employer, do I put it in a pension, do I put it in an ISO, you know, what sacrifices do I need to make? What does good look like here? That's a slightly more complex question, right? What, what interests me about what you've just described is the actual human engagement process. When you, when you get someone in the right frame of mind and you're in front of them, it's actually not that hard. The challenge is creating that context and creating the resources to deliver that. And I'm really interested in what you were saying about I'm thinking about all, all, all the work that Guy's focused on with the pension engagement season, and which we'll come back to that later in this podcast. Yeah. But you're, you're describing a model where it's scalable through the workplace. Yeah, the workplace is one of the solutions there. So definitely it's scalable through the workplace. The employer's invested in it. Not only is he invested in it, he wants the best for his membership as well. So when you've got their support and they run things like, you know, we do this alongside the ABCs, they run things like money weeks or pension weeks, you know, getting people in. The advantage of having like a, a bus or then later on the Scotchwood as retirement vehicles is you're actually taking people out of their work environment and into a pensions environment. So that also helped as well. So you were kind of breaking that cycle from just a meeting room at your work to somewhere you were in, in a zone where it was actually all about your pension scheme and all about your benefits. And you relied on the employer to to drive that stuff through to get, you know, to fill all those sessions up so that you could run all the different training sessions across the course of the day. And you could indeed run them with, you know, alongside the employer and the benefits people at the organization so, as well. Given the importance of engagement, yep. we, we know that's the case, um, given the biggest lever you can pull in determining the outcome people get from pensions is actually just how much they pay in. So if sure. you don't pay enough in you're always going to struggle. So you can cut the charges a bit, you can improve the investment sure. a bit, but it's, it's the contributions that are a big game changer there. So there's that, and that then depends on either the employer or the member putting the money in in the first place, plus a little bit of tax relief on top, right? Yep. So if those are the big levers that, that we can pull, shouldn't that metric be part of the value for money assessment? That I mean, So we've got the DWP and FCA and TPR looking at value for money now. Shouldn't that question of how you as a pension scheme are driving member engagement, shouldn't that be part of the value for money equation? Yeah, but then the metric for that is always going to be a challenge, isn't it? So how do you measure that engagement? I mentioned to you that we had the DWP in some sessions that we ran with advisors just in the last few weeks, and the DWP had their measures of value for money. EBCs already do that kind of work when they're reviewing one scheme versus another and they're placing new schemes in the market. And engagement is a big part of that. Measuring how it works is, is more of a challenge, but engagement is absolutely a big part of that. And I would expect that you know the DWP would have that within their final framework. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, just kind of thinking about some work that my colleague Nathan Long did back at Hargreaves Lansdowne was... You know, we, we came up with a set of metrics. What percentage of the membership have logged into their account in the last 12 months? How many personal email addresses do we have for the members? You know, because to get that, they've got to give it to us. So it's yeah. chosen to engage by sharing that information with us. How many of them have done 
an expression of wish on their benefits. How many sure. of them have done anything with their investment choices? How many of them have varied their contribution rates? You've got those kind of metrics, which are pretty good indicators of how engaged someone is with their, their retirement plan. Yeah, and they would all be part of it. Possibly for me, that with the exception of the, the investment bit, I think the investment bit's more of a dangerous one because a lot of people will choose their own investments and then they'll fire and forget and they'll never do the, the, the things that they need to do uh, to, keep, to keep on track. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And so that's a really interesting consumer duty question, isn't it? If you've got someone to choose a slightly more racy fund, and you can tell, you know, if Robert hasn't logged into his account for five years, yep. you know, there's a consumer duty question there about, well, what are you doing about that? Because you know Robert should have checked on that fund before now. So, you know, I think the FCA comes into play on that one. Yeah, I, th- well, I think there's some really interesting research around that, Tom. So there's some really interesting research in Sweden that Richard Thaler has been involved in, you know, when, when they launched auto enrollment in, in Sweden, where people were encouraged to choose their own funds. And they didn't do so well, did they? They didn't do so well. But what's really interesting is they've gone back and reviewed that. And some of the companies that were picked were actually breaking the law, you know, and they've had court cases against them and people have been written to repeatedly saying, move your money away from here. And yet people still ignore it and leave their money where it is. And I think that's always the risk. So although you can have a consumer duty, you can write to people, the evidence in places like Sweden is that large numbers of people will just ignore all that stuff, no matter what you do. Interesting. So what can you do apart from keep time? Well, Steve Webb would say, well, the answer is you're just building good defaults and, and then everything's fine because if people are defaulted to good outcomes, that's at least or at least to not bad outcomes. You know, that's yeah. a good place to be. And then you do what you can on top of that. And I guess engagement early on when people are in their 20s and 30s, that serves a really important purpose primarily in terms of the contribution rates and also to a lesser extent in just getting them taking responsibility for this aspect of their financial affairs because when they get into their 50s and they start that run into retirement, that capacity to make good decisions and to understand what's coming down the tracks and how early they can retire and what the standard of living is going to be, that's when it becomes really important, right? Yeah. Interestingly, we just ran some research through our Employer Innovation Forum. We get, we've got a kind of cohort of employers. We get together and ask them questions. And I, what, the question I asked them in the last month and earlier on in May was, who's the most difficult cohort to engage with pensions? They pretty much, I think it was like 60-odd percent of them said the number one most difficult cohort to engage was people in their 30s or sorry, under 30s, under 30s. So people in their 20s to 30s. And I'm not sure that they do need to really engage those people because they're coming in the default you know, default levels and if it's a good scheme with a good default, then they're already a lot better than previous generations would have been. Well, I, I'm going to challenge you on that. Go for it. Pre- previous generations would have been building up a 20% plus funding rate in a DB pension and they were the ones who were just fine, right? Yeah. So the cohort retiring today, they've done pretty well. And the, you know, the, the sort of younger baby boomers have done really nicely for themselves thank you very much if you're being defaulted in at eight percent and it's you know as we know it's not all your earnings because you get that deduction at the bottom and maybe you get some breaks in employment then all of a sudden that's not such a good model and, and so that engagement particularly on the contribution rates becomes a bit more relevant yeah i'll, I'll, I'll give you that one for sure I, I was immediately thinking that um in the last in in the 10 15 years prior to auto enrollment coming in the level of participation for people in the 20s was tiny 
Mm-hmm. Whereas what we've seen under Autumn Roman is that people in their twenties, their participation rate's gone through the roof. And, and more, they stay in, don't they? They don't yeah, drop the, down. There's more people in their twenties in schemes than there are people in their fifties. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that downswing in outcomes for people in their late 40s, 50s today, who probably predominantly don't have DB pensions or only have very modest DB pensions from perhaps early in their working lives, and who haven't built up significant DC pots, they are going to be a challenge for us. Yeah. You know, they're the ones who are going to still be working in their late 60s because they can't afford to stop. Whereas I guess we've got a bit more time with the younger generations. But I'm still slightly uncomfortable with the idea of, oh, well, the under-30s, we just don't need to worry about them. I think, you know, I mean, I know they've got other things to worry about. I have yeah. several of them in, in my own house. <laughs> you know, yeah. They are not interested in pensions, but that at least some recognition that this is my problem to worry about and, you know, taking at least a passing interest from time to time and yeah. what's going to happen later on seems to me like a pretty good idea. Yeah, what, what we try to do is get them to, to get their maximum employer contribution they can get. Yeah. You know, if, you can, if we can move people to that phase, then that's absolutely the right thing to do. And, and what works with that cohort, I would say, really well is stuff like the Age Me technology, you know, so where you can put in how much you've got, you know, you can put in how much is going into your pension and it ages you to the age that you could retire on the income that you would actually want to achieve. Yeah, I and think then, someone snuck into my house and fitted one of those in my bathroom mirror. <laughs> but when you're younger, that stuff is much more effective and you're more likely to engage with it and it's on your phone. So we just need to be be wise to how we engage those different audiences. That doesn't work when you're 55, right? Because you're going to look not that much different. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so let's just kind of touch on the IFS research because I thought that was kind of interesting. So kind of thinking about those older ages, and I'll come back to Garpelman's engagement season in a minute, and I wanted to just kind of talk to you about that a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get there, just kind of, and I, I touched on this in the last podcast I did or a recent one because I thought the IFS research was really interesting and you and I sat for a presentation with them yesterday yeah. and it was really interesting. That presents some quite interesting challenges for how we engage with people in that run into retirement, those 50-somethings, you know, thinking about things like the midlife MOT and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think midlife MOT is a a superb thing and definitely something that we we need to be looking at. One of the things that I really noticed traveling around the country was how few people really plan for later life, just not just financially, but what they'll actually do. You know, I've, I've met absolutely loads of people, things like six months away from retirement, who've no idea what it means to be retired. Oh, that's scary, isn't it? It's scary, but it's, it's reality because I can remember the people that do know what they're going to do. You know, so I met one lady who her husband was in the police, so she was going to be retiring quite early. He's a bit older than her, but she was retiring a bit early, at the same date as him. And they had enough money to go around Europe with their tent and spend time everywhere. So they, they, they knew exactly what they were going to do. Yeah. yeah, they had a plan. But I can't think of hardly anyone else who did have a plan. You know, people just months away uh, from retirement with no idea what it means to be retired. And that's why people end up coming back to work. They don't have financial advisors, most people. They don't have financial planners. So they, they haven't a good vision. And I don't think we've really presented great visions of what retirement actually looks like. But this moves away from being a pension question, doesn't it? This is about, you know, how you live your life. This is, this is slightly more profound, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I'd agree. But the way that people are accessing their money now is so different from what it was 10 years ago that it gives you different opportunities. And, and you know, people are living longer and healthier for longer 
yet they're accessing their money even earlier than ever from a pension fund. So we can see the way that people are, are reacting is different from what it has been in the past. And of course, you probably don't see that really through the IFS cohorts yet because there's predominantly people that are a bit further down the line and predominantly people that have had DB benefits. But yeah, it did seem to put the kibosh on the, what was it, the hockey stick approach to retirement. That notion that, hey, I can just suck a load of money out of my pension pot now because my spending needs will drop as I go into later life. The IFS was challenging that. So, yeah. Uh, what we're seeing, and you know, you've made the point about the differences between what people say they will do and what they actually do, is, well, it turns out what people are actually doing is they keep spending at roughly the same rate as they go through retirement. So if you've, if you've spent all that money earlier on, you've got a problem on your hands later on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So if people are having a steady income, then you might think that points towards a, you know, an annuity-type model. But I think one thing that we kind of miss out when we look at a lot of this income-based approach to retirement is that people actually value the fact that they've got a big pension pot. People value that in a slightly different way from maybe that the industry does. And, I, you know, I kind of give it the example of, you know, four guys playing golf together. They've done that for years and one dies at 62. You know, sad, but, you know, three of them go on, continue playing golf together. And they're all in drawdown. Next one dies at 72. And at least two of them left over. And, and it's at that time that people are saying, no, you should be buying a new two. You should be locking that money away because, you know, your spending pattern's more level now. As you get older, you feel you're closer to death. Emotionally, you're less likely to want to buy an annuity. And psychologically, being able to see that account with that capital sum in, I think, is quite significant, isn't it? We shouldn't underestimate the impact that has on people's sort of sense of well-being. Absolutely. It feels like it belongs to them. And as soon as they put that into an annuity, it doesn't belong to them anymore. It's gone. And it's just a, it's just a level of income that runs for a few years. People always underestimate how long they're going to live. So you've got that whole piece, particularly if somebody that's close to you has just died. You know, you're emotionally, you're in a different place. So it's difficult, I think, for people to give up that big pot that they've, they've built up. More difficult than we might give it credit for. Yeah, if you get my yeah. it's interesting. And I mean, so elsewhere, I've been doing some work around equity release. And yep. one of the things we looked at was how people feel about inheritances. And, and what was really interesting there is that clearly there are a lot of people who think, well, no, I won't spend my wealth because I want to pass them on to my kids. Yeah. These kids are in their 50s, right? So kids, in inverted commas. Yeah. But it could be grandchildren. Grandchildren, getting them on the housing ladder is another element of the equation, right? But when we asked the younger cohorts, should your parents spend the money on themselves now to improve their standard of living in retirement, or should they guard that capital to give you an inheritance? They all say, no, 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 spend the money now. We don't, you know, we'd rather you enjoy it than we, we get to benefit from it after you've died, which I thought was really interesting. So I feel like in some cases there's a mismatch there between what yeah. the parents think the children want and what the children would tell the parents they think they should do. Uh, well, it definitely sounds like it there. I think in that mix, we've also got that, that whole thing about taking all that money and giving it to a provider like Scottish widows yeah. uh, and then not having it anymore, you know? So, so that, 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 that's in the mix as well. And all through the research that we've done, what I found is that people would tell you that they wanted that regular income and they would go through, like we'd, we, we tested all the different types of, you know, online guidance, online advice propositions for people at retirement. And people would navigate to the point where they were at a big red button and a big red button that you could press it and, and then things would happen. You know, that would be you transacting. And when people 
saw the big number versus the small number, the big number of what they had now, the small number of what they were going to get in the future, they were less like, much less likely to press that button. It's really interesting, isn't it? And there's definitely some behavioural, psychological things going on there that aren't entirely rational. But, you know, for those people, they're absolutely real. So I guess, you know, value protection in annuities is an interesting element of that equation. It's saying to people, look, we'll give you what you actually objectively want and need, which is a secure, reliable income for the rest of your life. And, and we, you know, you've just told us that's what you want, right? But to deal with the kind of psychological hang-up bit, you know, because you don't want to hand over your capital, what would it say? Look, if you die in the first 15 years or whatever, there'll be this tapering lump sum payout or something that makes you feel better about handing over the capital. Yeah. I, I guess where that gets difficult is the distribution process, the communication process around that gets quite complicated. And, you know, we found at Hargreaves, there's a real problem with trying to persuade people to buy investment-backed annuities yep. because it's complicated, yep. right? We could sell them a drawdown. We could even occasionally sell them a conventional annuity. Once things got more complicated than that, you know, it gets really quite hard. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think to some extent, you know, the toothpaste out the tube, you know, so people... <laughs> It's out the tube. We've got we've got all these freedoms. You've got these big pots of money. You could use it in different ways. You've been told you'll never need to buy an annuity again, and it's working back to try and you know help people see what the value of that level of income stream is. Because as you just said, IFS are saying that it's a pretty level income stream that people need in retirement. So one other thing that I would do, and I've made this point elsewhere, is I'd put a much more aggressive tax charge on the pension fund death benefits. Yeah. You know, disincentivize people to hold on to that capital, encourage them to spend it now. I mean, I think I think it's ridiculous that we give people all this tax relief up front and then we let them pass the money on tax-free on death, largely tax-free on death. But that is another story. So you and I have both been quite interested in what's now developing with this engagement season idea, what started off as a statement season and more yep. into a kind of engagement season. And I guess kind of my questions around that are, first of all, is the industry serious about this? Is the industry actually going to step up and do something meaningful here? And if it is, what, what's that going to look like? And I'd be really interested in your thoughts around that. Well, you know, as you say, I'm involved in it. I'm representing Scotch Widows amongst a whole slew of provider funders. So there's about 15 different firms involved in this. Now, I can't speak on behalf of the whole program, but I can definitely tell you that that level of working together is serious. The people involved represent 41 million scheme members, and they've agreed to put in a million pounds over the next three years. So you know that, that's a serious amount of money. It's a serious amount of organizations that are behind it. And yeah, I'll definitely say it's serious. We're still in the stages of developing it, but things are moving reasonably quickly for yeah. a big organization. Uh, like uh, okay, so I accept that. Spreading one million pounds mm. across 41 million people mm. is a pretty small per capita spend. And you know, the, the, the analogy has been made elsewhere. When you look at the advertising expenditure that the industry already engages in and just flogging products rather than sure. stuff, a million quid, I'm not trivialising it. It's not a small sum of money, but in the context of what goes on elsewhere, it's also it's not nothing, but it's not big either. So, how can the industry actually make that money do something meaningful? So, I would imagine, and I can I can speak for Scotch Widows, but I'd imagine that all the providers involved will be in a position whereby they'll want to amplify the whole pension messaging around pension engagement season. So, pension engagement season is due to run from about Pension Awareness Day, which is September the fifteenth, through to November the fourth the first week of November, which is talk money week. So you've got a period in time, which is pension engagement season. Across that time period, you'll have all providers 
that are in this group coming together to amplify the messages around getting to know your pension over that time period. So it's not just about what they're funding within the PES pension engagement season, it's about what they do separately to support that and amplify it. And if you think about things like Pension Awareness Day in the past, you'd have had Now Pensions, you'd have had you know, Aviva, ourselves, all talking about that and putting some activity around that. That's what's happening here, but just at a bigger scale. Okay. So a million pounds isn't the total sum. It's the sum that's going to pension engagement season specifically to pay for, you know, a creative agency to come in and develop a cool campaign around it, to pay for people to actually run the campaign from ABI and PLSA. So that's just going into getting the campaign off off the ground. I mean, and, and people like our organisations like the DWP are part of that as well. So it becomes an opportunity and, for and us. Maps, all. Maps in the room. Yeah, yeah, and ma- maps absolutely are involved in it as well. So I went down to a meeting just the other week, maps with the DWP were there. And that's about making sure that we're all coming together to amplify the message because we'll all need to continue doing our own things Ideally, we'll have a common logo or a common brand, which is pension engagement season that springs into life for this period from September through to November. And we've got lots and lots of activity. So lots of opportunities for different cohorts to engage with their pension across that time. Okay, that, that all sounds really good. So two more questions on that then. First yep. of all, what are we going to call it? Okay, I'll just park that one for a second. And then the other question is, how will we know if it's working? What are, what are, what are the metrics? What are the, you know, because you've got to be able to measure the stuff coming out the other end. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that as well. But the name, first of all, any thoughts okay. on that? So I, it's a tricky one. I don't have a magic answer. I actually went out to you know, the Employer Innovation Forum, so I asked a whole lot of employers this, and I also went out on Twitter and asked the question as well. Dangerous thing, asking questions. Yeah, but I was, I was pretty impressed, you know. So from our employer kind of forum, I guess my favourite one was, where's my pension? <laughs> you know, just simply yeah. simply that. And then across, across the kind of advisor forum and Twitter forum, we kind of got like, take a nosy at your pension, or it's Christmas for pensions, or time to give your pension some attention. I think that was uh, Mark Ormston. So there was, yeah, there's a whole host, and lots of people have got involved in it. And it's interesting how involved the industry's got. So Henry Tapper wrote a blog about it. Paul Lewis from the Henry, BBC Henry got Tapper involved. Henry Tapper writes blogs about a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, fair enough, you know, people getting involved in it. Paul Lewis from the BBC, uh, Nick Miller, Ian at Money Alive. So lots and lots of people getting involved. Okay engaging with topic and coming up with ideas so there's genuine interest and desire for this to be a success and then i guess if the money gets you know, talk about a million pounds if that's partly used for a creative agency to bring some professional kind of yeah yeah okay, that's let's, exactly let's what's happening through, there let's work through the ideas and come up with what we think is really going to most resonate with people okay so we'll see what happens there and in terms of how will we know whether it's working or not what are your thoughts around that yeah well i mean you you mentioned the stuff that you and nathan uh, nathan have come up with around successful pension engagement campaigns and we've asked questions about this i think the challenge is going to be how all different companies can get in a in a space to be able to report in a similar format so i mean if you if you think back to my questions about you know what have i got is it enough and what can i do next so that first bit about what have I got, if we can get people to register for online services, if we can get people to update their email addresses, as, as you said, if we can get people to log in and find out what they've got, then these are all measures that, that we can bring into play there. We also have a whole lot of measures that we don't want to trigger, which is obviously encouraging people to opt out or any of that stuff. Mm. So it's about getting that balance right, getting the language right. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in, in the first instance, uh, that, that's going to be where the, the focus sits around getting people to 
take a nosy, get involved, get engaged. And that doesn't sound all that exciting, but that would be a big start if you can get people to know what they've got, update the details. And if they're if they register for apps, so I can see that you know people yeah. who use the Scotch Widows Pension app do it about once a week. Yeah, that's a big engagement gain right there. Okay, and I guess the other thing is this is not a quick win, is it? We've kind of got to no. dig into the long haul on this one because it's a, it's, this, this is going to take years to, to, to shift, right? Well, well, it's a three-year campaign that's been committed to at this point in time, so we've got that level of commitment there. In three years' time, we should have the pension dashboard, and the pension dashboard should answer that first question, what have I got? It should be really easy for people to do that. For me, the question will be, how easy is the pension dashboard to access? Are you going to put it places where people already go so that they can constantly take all the friction out of them finding what they've got in the pension? So once people have that information, they have a different level of interest. Is Scottish Widows going to have a version of a dashboard? Well, you know the, the way that we work just now is your pension already appears next to your bank account. Yeah. So the big, better question would be whether Lloyd's Banking Group yeah, will have point. a version yeah. of the dashboard. You've got 4.4 billion logins a year. So we're definitely leaders in the space, working on it, excited about it. And we've gone through a lot of the data cleansing to try and make this stuff happen already to put the pensions next to the bank account. I would love it for us to be able to have access to your pension dashboard next to your bank account. And then probably for all the other banks to do that as well, just because people go to the bank more than they go to Amazon. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I use my, my banking app most days. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a good positive note to finish on. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's full steam ahead and you know, pension engagement season kicks off properly in September and really excited about it and hopefully we can we can move the dial quite a significant way. Robert, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.